0: invite you this morning to turn with me to Revelation chapter number 1 again. Revelation chapter number 1, as you know, we have been uh, for quite some time now, been in a verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians, um, but we're taking some time away from that this morning for a number of reasons. One of those is to give me more time to meditate and to develop that text, but another reason is that I am uh, burdened this morning to, to preach a very straightforward and unambiguous proclamation of Jesus Christ. Uh, We live in a day in which it is so easy to be deceived to suppose yourself to be a Christian when you truly do not know the Lord. Uh, So many churches and so many preachers, very little proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, my prayer is that we would clear our minds of all else and fixate our thoughts and our affections upon Christ alone. And as we do so, may the Spirit of God search our hearts. May we ask questions such as, Do we really know Him? Do we really love Him? Are we really living for Him? Or are we deceived? You know, it's possible, of course, we know it's possible to be deceived, to think yourself to be saved when you're not, but it is also possible for a Christian to be deceived in thinking that they are serving the Lord, in thinking that they are following Him, in thinking that they are devoted to Him, when they are harboring an island of selfishness and pride that they will not relinquish because they have placed certain things in their life above the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's preach Him today as He ought to be preached and exalt Him from Revelation. We want to read our text beginning in verse 9 down through verse 18. Revelation chapter number 1 beginning at verse 9. These are the words of God. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, and unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. The late R.C. Sproul was once asked, What is the most important thing you can teach non-Christians that they do not know? R.C. answered, that's easy. They don't know who God is. And then the follow-up question was asked, what's the most important thing Christians don't know that they need to know? R.C. answered, that's easy too. They don't know who God is. These sad but true words characterize a day in which there are an abundance of churches where God is a mere afterthought. If you were to be placed in a room all by yourself, and told to talk about your best friend. Many of you could go on and on, uh, perhaps even for hours. But if you were placed in that same room and told to talk about God, His attributes, His character, His wonderful works, shame it to say some of you perhaps may not be able to get out more than a couple of sentences. But we need in this day and ours a Christianity that is God-centered, not man-centered. We need a holy man of God who will stand before the people of God and open the Word of God and declare who God has revealed Himself to be. And the pinnacle of who God has revealed Himself to be is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And no church and no believer will ever rise any higher than, Than their exalted view. Of Jesus Christ. You tell me what your view of Christ is. And I'll tell you what your standard of holiness is. You tell me what your view of Christ is. And I'll tell you the deep affections of your heart. You tell me what your view of Christ is. And I'll tell you the state of your worship. You tell me what your view of Christ is. And I'll tell you the zeal of your evangelism. How you see the Lord Jesus Christ sets the tone for the reality that is your Christian life. Today we are plagued with a much too high view of man and a much too low and simplistic view of God. It was Luther who said to Erasmus, your views of God are much too human-like. We want to design a God after our own likeness. We want to invent a God that is okay with our sins. We want to create a God that requires nothing of us and allows us to live however we want to live. What we must do is not fashion a false God to our pleasing. But we must conform ourselves to the one true and living God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. And we must not just receive some of what the Bible says about Jesus Christ We must embrace all of what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. When many think of Jesus Christ, they think of a babe in a manger. Or they think of a kind carpenter from Nazareth. Or they think of a good teacher who went about healing the sick and feeding the hungry. They see Jesus Christ only in the humiliation of His incarnation. And indeed they should, for all of this is true of Him. But these things alone... Do not paint the full picture of who Jesus is. We must not only see Christ as He was when He walked this earth 2,000 years ago, but we must see Christ as He is now. We must see the exalted and glorified Jesus Christ. Not just the Jesus in the meekness of His humanity, but Jesus in the majestic awe of His radiant glory. To view the full picture of Jesus Christ, we must look upon Christ with one eye on Him as He was 2,000 years ago. We must never forget His work upon the cross, but we must remember that it is a finished work. He is no longer upon the cross. He is no longer bleeding and broken. That is who He was, but we must also see who He now is. We must look upon Jesus Christ with our other eye, fixated and riveted on the Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the Christ who has been exalted as sovereign and Lord over all, to whom all judgment has been given. This is the Christ who is the risen head of his church and the king of his kingdom. This is the Christ who ever exists in the fullness of his attributes. This is the Christ to whom every knee must bow and every tongue must confess. This is the Christ. Who is coming again? He came once as a lamb, but I tell you, he's coming back as a lion. This is the Christ that we must see. This is the Christ that we must declare to the world. And who better to reveal this picture of Christ to us than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? So we look now to our text in Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to give you a number of headings this morning. The first, beginning in verse 9, I want you to see the servant's responsibility. The servant's responsibility. Look with me at verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here is the beloved disciple John in in the midst of immense persecution. He has been banished to the island of Patmos. Patmos was an island in the Aegean Sea, and it was a prison, a concentration camp of the Roman government. It was a Roman version of Alcatraz, if you will. Well, his crime, he says for us in verse 9, was believing the word of God and placing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what sentenced him to the island of Patmos, where he was tortured, where he was boiled in Greece, where he was exiled, cut off from society because of his devotion to Jesus Christ. At this point in his life, John is an older man. He is well into his 90s. He's near the end of his life. Some might think that by this stage, surely God would be done with him. But you must see that God still had a work for his servant to do perhaps the greatest task of john's life to pin the book of revelation and to record this picture of jesus christ notice verse 10 john says i was in the spirit on the lord's day as john is suffering on patmos jesus visits him in the supernatural realm as john is in the spirit he hears this great voice John describes it as a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Throughout this vision, John will see and hear things that are almost impossible for him to describe, and he will use things familiar in his own day to paint the picture of this majestic vision. In order to understand much of the book of Revelation, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of a first century reader. We have to understand John did not primarily write this book to Christians in 2022, but he wrote this book to seven literal churches in Asia Minor. And the first thing that John experiences in this vision is this dominant, asserting, forceful, loud, and preeminent voice. I want you to see that John did not hear a hush or a whisper, John heard a thundering voice that came booming out of heaven with piercing clarity. Throughout Revelation, a loud voice is a symbol of the solemnity and specialness of what is about to be proclaimed. This voice that John heard could not be mistaken and it could not be ignored. This voice had to be heard. Verse 11 this voice identifies himself to John and begins to issue instructions. The voice says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And here are the instructions. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. John was commanded to write a letter and send it to seven local churches in Asia Minor. It's very interesting that during times as perilous as these... As John is in the midst of persecution, as a wicked emperor is at the helm of the Roman Empire, as Christians are suffering throughout the known world, Jesus takes time to write to his churches. That shows you in the midst of this chaotic world, what is at the center of our Lord's heart. It is his own people and his own churches. And he doesn't give them a 12-step plan on how to avoid persecution. Nor does He give them a blueprint on how to reform the government. It's not that Jesus didn't care about what was going on in Rome. But it's that God recognized that the greatest need of the hour, what the world needed more than anything, what what His churches needed, was a revelation of Jesus Christ. A fresh glimpse of Him from the Scripture. That they might behold Him in His glory. That they might know more about Him. That they might be encouraged to magnify Him in their day. May I submit to you that this is and always has been the great need of God's people. This is still our need today. If there was ever a time when the people of God needed to receive another glimpse of who Jesus is, it is today. We don't need social, political, or cultural opinions from men. We don't need a motivational talk to encourage us in our daily walk. We don't need practical tips and tricks on how to get by in the world that we live in. We don't need even to see a certain man in the White House. What we need to see is the God-man seated upon the throne of heaven to be reminded of the God that we serve, the King that we worship, We need a Patmos experience. We need to see the Lord as He is. And who better to show us that than Christ Himself. John was instructed to write down what he experienced. And this vision that follows is John's obedient to these instructions. That's the servant's responsibilities. I want you to notice, secondly, the self-revelation. The self-revelation, which begins in verse 12. John says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. (laughs) Of course he turned to see the voice that spake with him. How could he not turn to see the voice that spake with him? And John knew exactly who this was that was speaking to him. John did not turn because he didn't know. He turned because he did know. John turned because he desired not only to hear, but to see. And what he sees is the most detailed view in the entire Bible of the glorified and exalted Christ. This is Jesus as Jesus sees Jesus. This is Jesus giving a self-description of himself. This is an infallible and perfect revelation of who Jesus is. There's a lot of confusion today about who Jesus is. This is the truth of who Jesus is. And in this self-revelation, Jesus gives six things that he is for his church. And as we walk through this text, I want you to search your heart, and I want you to ask yourself, is Jesus this these things for me? Is he these things for me? Well, what are these six things? Number one, I want you to know that Jesus is the power of the church. He's the power of the church. Verse 12, at the end of the verse, after John turns, he says, In being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. The seven candlesticks refer to the seven churches. John sees Jesus in the midst of the churches. He is never on the outside, of his churches. He is never on the perimeter. He is never off in the subsidiary. He is always at the very epicenter of his churches. Any church that loses Jesus Christ as their center is, is off on a wrong road. But if a church is to do the will of God, they must keep Jesus Christ in the very center of all that they do as a church. Jesus said himself, or where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This speaks to us of his continual power and his continual presence that he promised when he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. All power on heaven and earth is given to me, and I am in the midst of you. Without him and apart from him, we can do nothing. But because all power has been given to Him, and because we have no power apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, when He is in the midst of us, we have all power. A church here is likened unto a candlestick because the purpose of a candlestick is not to bring attention to itself. A candlestick serves as a stand upon which a candle is placed. And its sole purpose is to uphold the light of that candle for all to see. If there is no candlestick, there is no purpose. Or if there is no candle, there is no purpose for the candlestick. But the purpose of the church is not to magnify itself, to amass a following for itself, to bring glory and reputation to itself. The purpose of the church is to shine forth the light of Jesus Christ so that all honor and all glory And all praise goes to Him alone. I pray that is the purpose of this church. I pray that is what this church does in Paris, Tennessee, and the surrounding counties, and and even throughout the whole world. Christian worship is truly unlike any other worship. We do not worship a brave martyr. We do not worship a heroic religious leader. We worship a risen, glorified God. And exalted Christ who indwells and empowers His churches. He is the power of the church. Secondly, I want you to see Jesus Christ is the priest of His church. He's the priest of His church. Look at verse 13. He is one like unto the Son of Man. This, this refers us back to Daniel, chapter number 7, in verse 14 When the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ, approached the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and all dominion, and all power, and all authority, and all glory was given unto him, and it said that the increase of his kingdom and the increase of his glory shall never end. But I want you to notice the attire of Jesus Christ in this vision. The Bible says that he is clothed with a garment down to the foot and that he is girt about the paps with a golden girdle. This is unmistakably the attire of a priest who ministered in the temple. And how fitting it is as Christ is our high priest who has sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat and who has reconciled us to God and enabled us to have fellowship with the Father, John sees this vision, and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ wearing the garments of the great high priest. And there Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, and He ever liveth to make intercession for us. When we stumble into sin as His children, and the Father moves towards us with divine judgment... It's as if the Son who sits at His right hand looks to the Father and says, Father, You have already punished me for that sin. You have slain me on the cross for that sin. You have given me justice for that sin. And now You may give them mercy. What an undeserved comfort it is to have such a great high priest and advocate to represent us before the Father. Jesus Christ is the priest Of the church. Thirdly, he is also the purity of the church. It's the purity of the church. The Bible goes on to say in verse 14 His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. This speaks firstly of the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also of the immaculate and perfect holiness of Jesus Christ. Holiness is the essence of Christ. Holiness is what qualifies all of His other attributes. His love is a holy love. His grace is a holy grace. His wrath is a holy wrath. His sovereignty is a holy sovereignty. The crown jewel in the royal diadem of King Jesus is His holiness. There is not a speck of black in this vision. There is no sign Or any spot. There is no stain or any blemish, only immaculate white. This tells us, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is absolutely perfect. That Jesus Christ always does right. He never errs, He never makes a mistake, He never fails. There has never been anything that He has set out to do that He has not perfectly accomplished. There has never been anything that He has forbidden that has not been forbade. He never sins. His person is holy. His word is holy. His judgments are holy. He is so holy that 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 one attribute, that one essence is amplified to the third degree. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is love, 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 or Jesus is wrath, 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 but it says several places, that He is holy, holy, holy. He is completely innocent. He is completely undefiled. He is completely separate from sinners. His holiness places Him into a category all of its own. John writes elsewhere in 1 John 3:5: in Him is no sin. And Jesus Christ demands that His people... Be holy, even as He is holy. You must see that He is the standard of holiness. He is the rubric. He is the blueprint. See, compared to one another, we may fare well. We might look at the sins of another. We might look at the failings of a fellow church member. And we might be quick to pat ourselves on the back and to think that we have achieved to a standard that they haven't. When we compare ourselves to the utter holiness of Jesus Christ, all of us have fallen far short of his high mark. But the good news is, brothers and sisters, that the holiness that he demands from us is not derived from our own efforts of striving in the flesh. Rather, this is a holiness. That Christ has secured for us on the merits of his obedience, which he works out practically in our lives as he purifies his people. Titus two fourteen says that he died that he might purify a people unto himself. Therefore he is not only the purity of the church, he is the purifier of the church. Ephesians 5 says that he died and gave himself for the church that he might present it to himself a glorious church without wrinkle or spot or blemish or any such thing. This vision goes on to say of this one with hairs white like wool and white as snow that his eyes were as a flame of fire. See, Jesus Not only commands the purity of his church, he ensures the purity of his church because he sees with an all-seeing eye. This vision here, his eyes like fire, speaks to his omniscience. Jesus sees us with a searching, revealing, infallible gaze that penetrates deep into our souls. He sees with x-ray vision. He sees in our lives and through our lives. He sees into every church. He sees into every church member. He sees into every sinner. He sees into every lost person. To each one of the churches, he will go on to say, I know thy works. There is nothing we can hide from him. He looks into the depths of every human heart. He sees the most isolated reaches of your thought life. He sees your most secret inward desires. Hebrews 4.13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He reads us like an open book. It is foolish for us to hide ourselves or to attempt to hide ourselves from him. What a convicting thought this is. He sees every sin. He sees every failure. He sees every fault. The things that we have successfully hidden from everyone else, He sees. This is also a source of immense comfort for the Christian. Because this tells us that when we are as low as we can get, as we sit there on rock bottom, He sees the tumult in our hearts. And he looks upon us with compassion. When we are struggling, when it seems nothing is going right, when our family and friends are forsaking us, when the world is despising us, he sees our inner desire to please him, and he is satisfied with us. When that inner desire to please him doesn't come to fruition, he still sees the motive of your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord tries the heart. In those times when frustrations overwhelm you. In those times when no one understands you. In those times when you feel all alone. Rest assured, child of God, Jesus sees and Jesus knows. Oh, how this should encourage us to pursue holiness and to do all that we can for the glory of God. Knowing that we have a Lord who takes personal and compassionate interest into the affairs of our life. The Bible goes on to say that he has feet like undefined brass as if they burned in a furnace. Again, these are images that seem strange to us, but this is what John would have known to say in his day. Brass, which typically signifies judgment, refers here to Christ's unmitigated judgment against sin. He is the king of kings. And he is the judge of judges. And every sin that has ever been committed shall be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the sin of his own church. 1 Peter 4.17 says, Judgment must begin at the house of God. Christ maintains the purity in his church by moving about with flaming brass feet, judging whatsoever defiles and profanes. Because He loves His people, He cannot allow them to continue in their sins. Because He loves His church, He will not allow it to remain in the muck and the mire from which He saved it from. You know, it's very popular to say things like, Jesus loved you as you are. and uh, Jesus died for the drug addict. And Jesus died for the adulterer. And Jesus died for the sexually immoral. And all of that is very true. But He did not die so that they could remain that way. He died so that they didn't have to remain that way. He died so that they could be saved from those sins. And delivered from those sins. And so that they could experience redemption from those sins. Examine yourself this morning and see what things in your life need to be crushed and destroyed by these flaming brass feet. Confess them to the Lord. Say, Lord, stomp them out of me. Here is this sin. I have not the the power to overcome it. With those flaming brass feet that burn in a furnace, stomp them out. Don't try to cling to them. Cast them away from you. Know that it is better to enter into life maimed and pure, than to be wholly cast into hell with your sins. And again, this is not only a convicting thought for us, but it is also very comforting. Yes, Christ is a judge, uh, but Christ is not a cold, harsh, and cruel judge. Christ is a loving judge. Christ is a judge who has a vested interest in the good of His people. Christ disciplines us because He loves us. Every son is chastened and scourged. But those that aren't disciplined, the Bible says they are bastards and not sons. If you are a believer, the judgment of Christ is something to look forward to with great anticipation. anticipation. Because the judgment of Christ is your purity. The judgment of Christ is your cleansing. Christ does not judge you from a standpoint of condemnation. Condemnation has been removed for you. And it is this Christ that will have the final say on your life. Remember that as you are judged by others, as you are condemned by men, as you are ostracized by the world, remember that you will not stand before them on the last day. You will stand before Jesus Christ. Let this free you from the courts of public opinion. Give no thought to what the world thinks about you, or your service to Christ, or your church, or your devotion to God, or any such thing. They will not be your judge on the last day. And let this reassure you that your trials in this life are not in vain. But your life and your work, it will be unfolded before Jesus Christ, and He will know that you sought to please Him. And if you please Christ, it doesn't matter who you displease But if you displease Christ, it doesn't matter who you please. To hear from him on that day, well done, thou good and faithful servant, will fill our hearts with a joy that overcomes all the criticisms that we receive in this life. So serve the Lord with gladness. And don't worry about appeasing sinful men. Please God, and he will have the final word on your life. Not only is he the purity and the purifier of the church. Fourthly, he is the potentate of the church. The potentate of the church, a a Bible word that speaks of the imperial ruler of the church, the, the head authority of the church. Notice 15b, the second half of verse 15, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Earlier his voice was described as a great trumpet, and here it is as the sound of many waters. This voice was unlike anything John had ever heard as he searches for words to describe it. I imagine that as he heard this voice, he was reminded of the waves that that crashed on the shores of Patmos in the midst of a storm. Perhaps some of you have visited a place such as Niagara Falls or or a place where there is much water and you hear that rushing sound of mighty waters. This is the sound that John heard as Jesus spoke to him. This voice speaks from a place of unrivaled authority. As it has been said, there is not one maverick molecule in the whole universe but that it does the bidding of this voice. No other voice carries more weight than this voice. This is the sovereign, imperial, commanding voice of the Lord. The church must obey this voice, and no other voice. This is the voice that spoke the world into existence. This is the voice that said, Lazarus, come forth. This is the voice that commands all men to repent and believe the gospel. This is the voice that cried out on the cross, it is finished as the redemption of all God's people was eternally accomplished. This is the voice that will sound forth as the shout of the archangel when Christ returns to receive his own. This is the voice that will say to the redeemed, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And this is the voice that will say to the damned, Depart from me, I never knew you. This is the voice, brothers and sisters, that speaks to you right now as the word of God is preached. You must not ignore this voice. You must listen and obey this voice. This voice is the potentate of the church, the supreme ruler of all, the king of his kingdom. The only way to become a citizen of this kingdom is to believe upon the king and heed his voice. Fifthly, Jesus Christ, verse 16, teaches us he is the protection Or the protector of the church. Notice the Bible says, And he had in his hand seven stars. These seven stars refer to the pastors of these churches. The symbolism here, though, applies to the whole body. The whole church body. The image is is Christ's people being in the palm of his hand. this, This hand of a controlling protection. When when I hold John in my arms, John does not have to worry about whether he'll be fed or whether he'll be clothed or whether he'll be loved. He casts himself upon me as his father and trusts me to protect him and provide for him. The same goes for Edsel and Jackson or, or other children, their fathers. This is the picture that the Bible paints for us here with Jesus having the seven stars in the palm of His hand, in like fashion, our Lord providentially preserves and protects His people. The psalmist says, I have been young and now i am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor His seed begging bread. As long as Christ has a work for us to do, we can trust Him to preserve us and provide our needs. No place is more safe or secure for the child of God than to be in the right hand. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in His hand today? Are you resting content? Or are the fears of life besetting you and troubling you? You have nowhere to turn. You have no place of of comfort. You have no place of of consistency. Your life is, is being tossed to and fro. No steadiness, no comfort. There is one who can take you and place you in the palm of His hand, and He can hold you there, safe and secure. You are in the hand of the Son, you are in the hand of the Father, and you are sealed about with the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of promise. That is the picture of the believer's position in the Lord Jesus Christ. Child of God, when when our fears begin to attack us, when our doubts and worries come into our mind, we must remember that we are in that hand. And that our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, will care for us and provide our needs. Notice it says in verse 16, Out of His mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. The sharp, two-edged sword cannot refer to His voice. That's already been identified for us. Rather, this sharp, two-edged sword refers to how our Lord protects and preserves our spiritual health. Our Lord does this by cutting out of us things that defile. This sword is like a scalpel in the hand of a doctor who cuts away a cancerous tumor that if left alone would bring about death upon the patient. Such a surgery is not comfortable. It brings pain and it brings soreness. Sometimes there is a recovery period. But that surgery is essential if we are to remain alive. So it is when Jesus deals with our sins and wields this two-edged sword. Charles Spurgeon says of this two-edged sword, What a two-edged sword it is! How it kills self-righteousness, cuts the throat of our sins, lays the dust of the dead at the feet of Jesus. How all-subduing is this sword of the Lord! No sword of Gideon was ever so potent against a horde of Midianites as the sword that comes out of Jesus' lips against the host of our sins. When the Spirit of God comes in all His power into our souls, what death He works within us, and yet we live. What death to sin, and what new life in righteousness. O holy sword, O breath of Christ, enter into our heart and cut out our sins. It takes courage to pray that way. This is our Lord's work, as the protector of the church. Perhaps you are here today and you are struggling with sin in your life and you need to pray this morning, Lord, cut this out of me with your two-edged sword and once you have cut it out of me, stomp it with your brass feet, but do whatever it takes, Lord, to, to remove this sin. I would rather have my eye plucked out or have my hand cut off than to perish in this sin. What a protector is the Lord Jesus as he protects us from our own depravity do you realize that god saved you in a sense from yourself because all god had to do for you to go to hell was to leave you alone you were already on that wrong road you were already on that broad path that leads to destruction You were already going your own way, satisfying your own desires, serving yourself, but God intervened and saved you from you. Because he's the protector of the church. What a savior is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And sixthly, I want you to see also in verse 16 that he is the prestige of the church, he's the prestige of the church. The Bible says, And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. This is the culmination of this mighty and awesome vision. Here is the face of our Lord Jesus, shining brighter than 10,000 noonday suns. Here is the unfiltered, unveiled glory of God. This is the glory that filled the temple in Isaiah's day, This is the face that Moses could not look directly upon, for he would have surely died. This is Christ shining forth in sublime perfection. None of us have seen this face, but we will. We will. John did not even get to see it in the flesh. He saw it in a vision. But one day, when we are glorified, we will behold this face. The Bible says... What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we are the sons of God. We know not what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. This is the sum and substance of all that Christ is. This is the blazing, bright, intrinsic glory of God. And this glory is our theme as the church of Lord Jesus. If we could only show the world one thing, if we could only preach one message, it should be this glorious truth of who Christ is. What a mighty vision. What a wonderful self-revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the self-revelation. And thirdly, back in our main headings, I want you to see the solemn reverence. verse 17, the solemn reverence. John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John understood something of this mind-boggling and heart-arresting and knee-bending vision. He grasped something of who Jesus is, and his response was entirely appropriate. John did not go up and high-five the Lord. John did not go casually about his day as if nothing had happened to him. But the Bible says he fell at his feet as dead. Again, Spurgeon says, better to be dead at the feet of Christ than alive anywhere else. We should not be able to be so casual in the presence of the Lord. We rush in to service a minute before it begins. We rush out a minute after it's over and we go about our day as if nothing has ever happened to us. As if we did not just meet with the Lord of heaven. If you can come to church, sing the hymns of the faith, pray to the God of glory, hear the preaching of Jesus Christ, fellowship with the saints, and then go on living your life with no impact upon your heart, I fear for the condition of your soul. Because there is something transcendent, there is something mighty that happens, not just on the Isle of Patmos, but every Lord's Day, and every other day, whenever God's people assemble together to worship and we pray that that invocation prayer and our call to worship and we ask the Lord to to descend upon us and meet with us. And yes, if you are a Christian, he indwells you and he is with you 24-7. But there is a special sense in which he is present here right now and he witnesses to his own name right now in this place in a way that he doesn't anywhere else. This is what John was experiencing On the Isle of Patmos as he had that worship service of one. And John's response would be our response if Christ were to walk in here today. We like to think, well, if Christ were here today, we'd all go up and shake his hand and tell him how thankful. No, we would be on the floor. We would be slain before him. We would take one look at his holiness and take one look at our wretchedness and we would say, we're done for. We're undone. He has come with a two edged sword. He is going to put us to death. He is going to slay us. This is what was going through John's mind. That's why John says for us, I want you to see the Savior's reassurance in verse 17. John says, And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. Well, if Jesus had to tell John, Fear not, what does that tell us? John was afraid. John was afraid. There is a holy and good fear of the Lord that our society desperately needs. Fear not. Why? Because I am the first and the last, John. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He comforted John with a reassurance of his person and work by saying, I am the first and the last. He is exclaiming his deity. He is affirming his eternality. He is the first. He is the last. And by implication, he is everything in between. John, I am your all in all. John, I am, I am your God. John, I am the one that you serve. You do not need to be afraid with me. All things are of him and through him and to him, the first and the last. And then this is really significant that he says this to John. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive Forevermore. This designation would have a, a special significance to John, more so than anyone else. Why is that? Well, because when Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, all of the disciples forsook Him. They all abandoned Him. The, the shepherd was smitten and the sheep scattered, except John. But John was present there at the cross. John stood there and he watched the Lord hang on the cross and bleed and die. It was to John that Jesus says, Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. John saw Jesus die. He watched as Christ bowed his head and gave up the ghost. No doubt that memory of the cross was racing through John's mind as Jesus says here, I am he that was dead. Notice he didn't say, I am he that is dead. No, I was dead, John, but I'm also he that liveth. (laughs) Again, that is significant for John. Why? Because John was the first disciple to enter into that tomb. Remember, he ran into the tomb as a witness to the resurrection. He knew what the Lord meant when he proclaimed to John, I am alive forevermore. And to this we can say what the Bible says in verse 18, Amen. And fifthly, I want you to see, as we close in verse 18, the end of verse 18, the sovereign resolution. He says, John, I have the keys of hell and death. Why don't you have to be afraid, John? Because I have the keys of hell and death. The ultimate source of John's comfort came from this Resolute declaration of Christ's sovereignty. He is the Lord of death. Death is a defeated foe to Christ. He has overcome the grave. Death has no hold upon Him. There is yet coming a day when Christ will exercise His ultimate authority and sovereignty over the grave, and He will open every tomb, and the dead shall rise, the just to everlasting life, and the unjust to eternal condemnation. It is not enough for him that he has redeemed our souls, but he will have our redeemed bodies as well. Jesus Christ has the final word over death. So we need not fear death, for we cannot die until the Lord turns the key that he holds in his hand. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the vision that Jesus delivered to John. This is what John needed in his day as he suffered there on the island of Patmos, And this is what we need in our day as we go through the providence that God has placed us in, all of the twists and turns that the Lord has set before us. We must ensure that our view of Christ is aligned with Christ's view of himself. The question for us today is what are we going to do with this text? We have no excuse for erring in our characterization of God, for he has revealed himself to us here. What are we going to do with it? How can we ever enter into his presence again without a holy reverence? May we have this vision ever at the forefronts of our minds. May we stand in awe and amazement of who our God is. Maybe realize he has the authority to convert sinners. He has the authority to build his church. He has the authority to care for his servants. He has the authority to extend the boundaries of his kingdom. He has the authority to cause even the wrath of man to praise him. He has authority to bring about revival. He has authority over our lives. And so I ask you, do you know this Jesus? I say this Jesus because... Everyone knows a Jesus. There are so many Jesuses today. But Do you know this Jesus? The one of the Bible? If you do, may you be astonished at His greatness. May you be amazed at His glory. But if you do not, let me say to you, friend, you do not have to continue lost and separated from God. But Christ stands ready to receive those who repent of their sins and come to Him by faith and receive what He has done on Calvary's cross. Embrace the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I say you will find acceptance with God. May we all ascribe the worship that is due unto him alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. We give you all honor, all glory, and all praise. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to receive what you have said about yourself in the word of God. May you be praised and exalted and glorified. In Christ's name, amen.